The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Our two sensors have detected germ contamination. Master Mungo, we must remain here until the cloud passes from the valley. Carbon-based life forms out there. Welcome to In Trouble Again, the Star Wars Droids Podcast, the show where we look back, analyze, dismantle, and remantle every episode of Droids: The Adventures of R2D2 and C3PO, the animated Star Wars oddity from the 1980s. I'm your host uh, William Thrasher, and with me is my counterpart Matt Shergi. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, it's a it's, what a long, strange journey it's been. This is the last you know, proper episode, then it's followed up by what we'll talk about next time, uh, The Great Heap, which is a sort of feature length, if you will, sort of like double length prequel episode to this story arc. And I cannot wait to get to that because that was the first episode of Droids I ever saw was that particular uh, arc. But we're not looking at that today. Today we are looking at the final episode of the Mungo Baobab story arc, and that is The Frozen Citadel, which uh, right off the bat, that name puts me in mind of uh, Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's an accident. Um yeah, this is directed by Ken Stevenson, written by Paul Dini, off a story by Ben Burt. Uh, Paul Dini has worked in a few of these episodes of Droids. He did more work for George Lucas uh, writing the Ewoks cartoon show, which is awful. And then, terrible. of course, I, I don't I don't think it's as bad as you think it is, but that's okay. another story for another podcast. Yep. But uh, this is, of course, before Paul Dini went on to uh, to revolutionize animation with the Batman animated series. Along with Bruce Timm. But he did Tiny Toons a little bit before that, didn't he? Oh, that's true, he did. I think, you know, now that I think about it, I think he had a hand in almost every piece of animation Amblin ever did. Right, and one of his first gigs way back was doing writing on Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Didn't he do some of the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo? Or am I hallucinating Uh, that? Oh, probably. He did... um... God, initially like a lot of filmation and Hanna Barbera stuff, so it, it's it's quite possible he. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know what he's doing now though. Is Paul Dini doing uh, comics or? Well, you know, there's a way to find out. I'm going to do a little post search. Do do do. What is his? Uh, what's on his current slate here? Because he wrote a few episodes of. Or at least the season two opener of Star Wars Clone Wars. Um, so he did go back and do more Lucas uh, stuff later. Oh, well, he's written an episode of the upcoming uh, new Creep Show television series. 
Oh, great. And looks like he, he gets a lot of writing credits for creating Harley Quinn, who shows up in a lot of tie-in media. But it looks like it looks like he's uh, working on uh, Arkham Tales of the Dark Knight, which is yet another Batman uh, animated spinoff. Uh, a direct-to-video uh, thing or a TV show? Or? Pro- I'm, I'm going to assume for DC streaming platform. I'm not finding too much information okay. on it. But, but he, he's kept himself busy. Uh, yeah, certainly. Cool. All right, yeah. So, I mean, this episode, uh, Frozen Citadel, just right off the bat, I just really like that it took a bit of its time. I think some of the early Runestone episodes are, are kind of fluff around a bit. But but here towards the end, I think you really get driven towards a sort of a much better story, and you get an actual decent ending for well, it's, a story it's a, arc. It's, a, it's, one, it's the most satisfying conclusion to a story arc, but also so many things set up or casually mentioned in earlier episodes in this story arc pay off in major ways here uh, in some pretty creative ways. In fact, there's only one payoff that isn't entirely satisfying, but I'll, I'll save that uh, for when we get to it. So uh, where we last left off, they had a vague idea uh, where the runestone treasure was hidden. So Mungo Baobab, R2-D2, C-3PO, and Auron and Nils uh, decide they're gonna go. They're gonna go prospecting out in the wilderness. So they get on this crazy six-humped camel uh, to trot away to uh, uh, to do to do their their treasure hunt. Uh, we get a lot. We get a lot of cartoon antics of C-3PO bounce, keeps getting bounced up into the trees by the camel's hump and each time he comes down with something a beehive, a space monkey uh, R2-D2 with no explanation of how R2-D2 got up in the tree to begin with, but uh, as they're uh, climbing up a mountain pass uh, one of Governor Kung's ships uh, comes flying through the valley that they just left and it starts releasing this green ga- or this uh, red gas and this is where a pretty grim uh, element enters the story. Um, Governor Kung, uh, this is so. This is the uh, Umbu region, which is the one region that uh, Kung doesn't control, but it's also the wealthiest and most fertile part of the planet. So he decides he's just going to clear it out so he can easily take it over, and he's doing that by releasing the ruse disease, the ruse sickness, uh, this pretty awful disease, which turns out. The Empire originally developed as part of a germ warfare program, but it was a so it, it's a Star Wars super weapon. But it's a super weapon so dangerously effective that even the Empire banned it because it turns out the one time the Empire used it before, it did as much damage to their own troops as it did to the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, I did not expect to see an Agent Orange metaphor uh, in, in in Star Wars, but I, I applaud them for tackling a difficult issue uh with with a biological warfare i I was very surprised when they did that but i also i thought well that makes it more interesting and uh gives a bit gives more weight to the story certainly and you you do have the irony when they they drop the ruse disease um you know governor coon doesn't have all his uh boxes checked and so he himself gets affected by the disease it gets into his ship yeah, his ship's own atmosphere filters don't filter out the the, the germs, so he gets infected. Uh, I guess, regrettably, Admiral Screed and his stormtroopers don't, but that becomes an interesting uh, story hook. Uh, now, the one thing that's weird, though, is that what the disease does, and I can't say this comes out of nowhere, because t- 
technically we know this is possible, but like the disease, once it runs its course, you know, you get a bad cough, you get really weak, but what the disease does in its final stages is you fade away into nothing, which I guess they don't want to show anything too horrific, but that is creepy. Just the idea that you can get a disease that just makes you cease to exist. Yeah. That almost seems like an excuse to not have to animate corpses or, it, it, it is sort of creepy, and, and as we'll see, like I think that the end of this episode, I, I, I found myself profoundly disturbed and even a bit surprised. Oh, uh, I at, can't wait to get at, to that moment and how they they pay that off. But we'll we'll get to that later. And it's uh it's just really nice in this here in this episode, uh, kind of like the one last week um, across the room C, where you have the characters going on a very defined quest to get something. Yeah, and the other the other thing I like is that Admiral Screed is done putting up with Governor Coong's bullshit. Like, he's just, he's not having any more delays. He's not having any more excuses. He gradually, throughout this episode, Screed just starts running the show because he's tired of Coons and competence getting in the way. Um, but Bola, who is uh, Nil's wife and Aaron's mother, is left behind in the valley. So after the germ clouds disperse, they all go back to the valley and find... Uh, and find Bola has been infected by the ruse sickness. Now, thankfully, Nils is a healer and might be able to develop a cure. However, turns out Nils is the only healer smart enough to whip up a cure on demand. So when Governor Kuhn realizes he has the ruse sickness, uh, he dispatches Gaff, the Mantis guy, to capture Nils. And we get a really nice confrontation uh, uh, in uh, in uh, Nils' own homestead. Uh where, once again, everyone forgets that Gaff has those venom spines that knock you unconscious. Maybe you can answer this. So so Gaff looks like an insect. And uh, why do, anytime in a cartoon there's an insect that talks, they have a voice that sounds like this? This really annoying affectation and the effect on it. I think it's because when it comes down to it, the only real noises we associate with insects are the high-pitched buzzings of their wings. Okay, because I'm thinking back to the 1950s movie The Fly, and that, you know, if one of them even talks at all, it's like, save me, save me! You know, it's a silly, like, high-pitched thing at the end of the movie. Although, to be um, fair, he's also super small, so that might account for the high-pitchedness, but yeah, they just they just give Gaff this, you're fearless, we need a cure for the rural sickness! And that's something that's laid in, is that Gaff's people are naturally immune to the ruse, and that yeah. pays off in an interesting way later. Well, when it does, it's nice to see uh, Kuhn kind of get his comeuppance uh, in this episode because he's he's brash, he's impulsive, he uh, he doesn't think before he acts, and it it has very dire consequences. Well, he's well and truly hoisted by his own petard. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was my favorite captain on Star Trek, Captain Petard. Oh, come on now. Don't you know what a petard is? It's the part of the trebuchet uh, that that counterbalances and goes up holding of the stones that the trebuchet is going to hurl. And, okay, so we, we're done talking about medieval siege warfare. <laughs> but, um... So yeah, so uh, Auron and Nils get captured by Kung and forced to work on a cure. So uh, Mungo, R2D2, and C3PO decide, well, 
they've they've got to rescue them. So they get into their stolen uh, stolen starship, and this is something cool. So early, so we know um, in a previous episode they acquired from one of Baobab's ancestors uh, a memling, this weird blob of putty that you can stretch into all these shapes, but it always returns to its original form. Turns out if you split it in half, both sides try to reconnect. And he puts one half in Auron's robe, and that's how he's able to track uh, Auron to Kung's secret base. And so we finally see, so again, secret base, another Star Wars staple, and it's built into a volcano right in the caldera. That is pretty badass. It is pretty neat. I recall last week, um, uh, Baobab got a clue on the last episode that was kind of a rhyme, right? Revealing what it was. The location of the runestones. Is this what you expected it to be? Uh, frankly, frankly, no, I no, I didn't. Um, but they still have that uh, that weird pyramid that, that C-3PO can't translate. And this is one of the things that doesn't exactly work for me. So, you know, they're there. And this uh, volcano is in some northern snow covered reaches. Um while trying to find a way into the secret base, they uh, find this cave, and there's this giant funhouse mirror in it. And it's in the reflection of the funhouse mirror that C-3PO realizes why he couldn't translate the language on the pyramid. It's written backwards. Uh, and I guess that's something his translation matrix can't take into account. But what disappoints me design-wise is we get some really nice shots of the pyramid all the writing on the pyramid are basic shapes, triangles, circles, squares, and hourglasses that look the same backwards or forwards. Gee, that, that's a good catch. I, You know, I, I like that the pyramid is kind of like a miniature Rosetta Stone of sorts. Uh, and, and even that it's a pyramid and all the writing on it reminds me a little bit of the... Um, what's the thing in Hellraiser they look at that has all the... Oh, the Lament the Configuration. Puzzle? Yeah, the lament configuration it reminds me a little bit of that for some reason, but um, oh, and the great real... Darth Cenobite comes out. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Uh, but that three uh, PO realizes it's just the thing backwards. I think is a bit too simple. I would have liked some more interesting business for him to figure out what the missing part of the message is. Yeah, I mean, because like it also means like they could have pressed the pyramid into the memling. That would have made a reverse of the same writing. Like there's there's plenty of ways that could have been found that could have been figured out deliberately. But um, but what what the pyramid tells them is that the rune stones are in fact in the volcano. the The matter that makes up the volcano. Uh, is there's a whole layer of runestones in it. And so that's the irony is Kung, who's been after these runestones for years, turns out his base is literally built right on top of the, the mother load of all runestones. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the runestones have been a device throughout this whole story arc. And, uh, you know, our heroes are trying to get the runestones one last time, even though every time they try to get runestones, it always blows up in their faces. Well, I mean, Baobab still needs to save his family's business. But th this is also where we get the one thing in this episode that, that I, I still don't know how I feel about it, where R2-D2 bumps into the funhouse mirror and it shrinks him to the size of an action figure, which, because it turns out that, that the mirrors are part of like a molecular disruptor trap that Kung is hidden around the mountain, which sadly never comes up again, but it almost feels too science fictional that you can shrink a droid. How do you feel about that? Um, 
I mean, in in a in that episode on the the planet with the whatever with the the little kid's pet, you had C three PO's neck get stretched really high and his voice changed. Like th- this episode has done a lot of has put the droids through a lot of weird forms of abuse and or transformation. It it didn't bother me as much. It just it did strike me as something very toyetic, if I may use a phrase, which I despise. Uh, <laughs> and then it's like, well, maybe they can sell, you know, miniature R2-D2 and regular size R2-D2 and C-3PO with a stretched deck. And I mean, you know, they didn't do that much uh, merchandise for this show because it wasn't especially successful, as it turns out. But um, but I, I do, it does make me wonder if they ever did like a, a bust or something collectible of like a Mungo Baobab or something after the fact. That would look damn cool. I mean, he is one of the best designed characters on this series. Um, I could see Screed, like a, a Screed figurine. I could easily see. Oh man, that would be that would be cool. Screed, uh, Screed continues to be, I think, my favorite villain on this series so far. Um, but they decide to take advantage of the fact that they have a shrunken R two D two. They send him into the secret base ahead of them to track down through an air vent to track down uh, Orin and Nils. Um, and then Bung, uh, Mungo and C-3PO need to sneak in, so they steal some robes from some alien pie merchants. Uh, and that's the way they distract the guard, is by bribing the guards with uh, free samples of mupple pies. So the mupples are back, only they're finally being eaten, because they did mention they were a delicacy, so <laughs> I was delighted by that. It is one of those things, we look back on all these episodes of Star Wars uh, droids uh, we've watched, Nearly every episode has a mishap involving food. <laughs> it's, a, it's a continuing theme, which ironically, droids cannot eat food, at least as far as I know. I think they just get a battery charge or something, right? Yeah, yeah, they power down, they recharge. <laughs> they don't power actually power down, they recharge. They use, they use oil to, to you know, work in their joints. Um Although I guess their plan works a little bit too well because they never make it into the base. They're just constantly feeding pies to the guards who keep demanding more and more and more. Um, but uh, Arn uh, and Nils do do make their cure. They make enough for Admiral Screed and enough to give to their neighbors in their village in the valley. Um, C-3PO outwits a snake cat, uh, gets into the room, and he slowly starts returning to his original shape, although his size kind of gets inconsistent from this point on. Um, but Arn, Arn and Nils escape. Everybody is in the landing bay uh, in the caldera where uh, Baobab's ship uh, uh, is located. Uh, Admiral Sc- or Governor Kung is trying to make one more plea for uh, for uh, to Admiral Screed. You're like, I've got a hovering mining laser. We can use that to seek the runestone. Uh, and I love that. I love that bit where where uh, Screed and uh, Kung are talking, and Kung's like, "You you promised me stormtroopers, imperial charters, a star destroyer. I promised you nothing until you delivered the rune stones to the emperor." Not only that, I don't think they've ever stated like how many rune stones he was supposed to give. For the Empire, have they? Just just, just a lot, although it seems like they don't need too many because the runestones are supposed to be so valuable. Um, but uh, Mungo tries to uh, make a bargain with Kung that he and his allies get safe passage out of the volcano, uh, and he'll give, uh, he'll give Kung uh, the cure. But R2-D2 and C-3PO, with the controls of the mining laser, they end up hitting some buttons, blow a hole in the side of the caldera, 
And then we see the runestones exposed. And, you know, the, the value of the runestones does keep getting higher as they talk about how many that they might be able to acquire. And it, they say, this is a galaxy's ransom worth of runestones, implying that there may be more runestones in this volcano than anywhere else in, in, in charted space. Um, and it's at that moment that Admiral Screed commandeers the planet and takes over Kung's base and declares everything the property of the Emperor. Yeah, and that's a pretty neat moment, and um, certainly in uh, the expanded universe stuff with the books, uh, they talk about the Imperials, you know, having declaring eminent domain and taking over planets, and that you have that twist at the end is uh, is pretty neat. So everything is kind of coming to a head. I think this is one of my favorite parts of the episode. Is your it's all working towards the climax where there's the the MacGuffin, the Rune Stone, right? Everybody wants it. They want they want it for different reasons. They're they're all um, our heroes are just trying to you know they made a good deal, uh, but they weren't able to completely pull it off because conflict. You know they exposed the Rune Stones by accident. Um, so and meanwhile, and there's the danger, right? There's the ticking time bomb in the volcano. Well, yeah, the volcano keeps having these periodic uh, uh, eruptions. I guess presumably the people in the base are safe, but they uh, they do like they do want to get out before the volcano gets too unstable. But the real thing that 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 accelerates the ticking clock is that R two D two keeps firing the mining laser, and it blasts. It creates a runestone rock slide. The runestones fall into the volcano. We don't. We we. At the, to this point, have never really learned what runestones are, just that they are incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. So the runestones fall into the lava, and it makes the lava freeze, which apparently that's what they do. Runestones can super cool things, which does imply a number of very important uh, industrial uses. So I like that without having too much exposition, this can get you thinking about why they are so valuable beyond just being pretty shiny rocks. But as uh, C-3PO points out, with the volcano, the volcano is the only thing keeping this whole area warm and habitable. Once it finishes freezing over, everyone's going to get flash frozen. Um, so they all rush into uh, Baobab's ship to take off. Uh, we never, we never really see what happens to Screed and his stormtroopers. So I can only assume they die frozen in the volcano, which is a shame because I would love to see Screed come back if the series had continued. But as they're leaving, Mungo's like, "Please, please," or not Mungo, uh, Screed. Uh, Kung is like, please, please, the cure. And in an amazingly animated sequence, uh, Baobab takes, tosses the cure uh, to Kung. I don't need this where I'm going. And Kung, his hand, he catches it, and then both of his hands fade away, so he can't take the cure. And we get this wonderfully animated, chilling scene of Kung dying and slowly fading away, and it ends with his uniform just deflating and crumpling to the ground. And I will go on record as saying that, that Kung's death is the best piece of animation that this series has had so far. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good moment. I think that the sort of dark irony of the scene works uh works well and but i mean coon was just been a major asshole his whole his whole time on on the series so far you and, don't feel um, too bad when he fades away no but it, it the way in which it's done i think is creative i thought you know a lesser cartoon would have just knocked him into the pit or something and in this uh that you have it tied into the cure and everything is quite um quite good 
And yet, yeah, with but, the way it ends, it does not uh, have Mungo uh, sending the droids off, does it? Well, not exactly. So, so you know, uh, Mungo and his his ragtag band they escape the volcano, and we we get a nice shot of the volcano completely icing over as they as they flee. Um, so, of course, the so presumably the Empire's gone, uh, Kung's gone. They return uh, to Bola, administer the cure, uh, and so everything everything's fine. So. Uh, Baobab says, "Well, I've still got to. I've uh, oh R two D two did still manage to get a couple of rune stones. He's got one jammed in one of his hatches. So Baobab's not completely empty-handed. So Baobab uh, says he's going to follow the rune comet back out of the system, uh, take care of everything he needs with his family business, and then he's going to come back for Auron because he and Auron are clearly in love. They hug, they kiss. I got to give mad props to this show for in 1985 uh, having an interracial couple and a children's animated series. Um, so... You know, it'll be a year before he comes back because that's the orbital pathway of the, of the Rune Comets. But he leaves R- without co- a comment or a big announcement. He leaves R two D two and C three PO behind to uh, just to, to to look after R and Nils and Bolo while he's away. Uh, and so that's the last shot is uh, is Baobab's ship vanishing into the into the distance while Orin, Nils, Bola, C three PO, and R two D two stand on this rocky outcropping watching him go. And it's this kind of nice, nice bittersweet ending. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a satisfying wrap up to this story arc, and uh, you know the only episode left of the series, which we'll talk about next time, is the Great Heap, which was a, a one hour, including commercials, uh, animated movie that aired, you know, probably six months after uh, after after this uh, particular episode. Yeah. Now, knowing how this show is structured, if it had gotten another season. I'm sure we wouldn't be starting from where this episode left off. It would just be R2-D2 and C-3PO on another planet with a new master with no explanation of how they got there. And I I wonder how hard they fought to try and get this a a different season because Ewoks got a a season two, I I think, right? Uh, Yes, uh, Ewok got two seasons and both seasons have more episodes than than one season of droids. But aren't some of that... I thought Ewoks had split up into like two uh, ten minute episodes or something. Uh no, they're full uh, half hour episodes. At least the ones I've seen. Okay. Um, and and Ewoks, frankly, is an easier sell than droids. Uh, but are you sure? I I think so. Yeah, because they're cute little teddy bear things. Um, droids. It 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 was going for uh an, an older, more. I mean, it's still made for children, but it's more sophisticated, I think, sort of audience with storylines you had to follow and, and big story arcs, which was pretty unusual at the time. I mean, I mean you know, with, with all these syndication deals and, and, and so forth, uh, they preferred having uh, networks preferred having shows that were just every episode was a one off. There was nothing, you know, they could air in whatever random order they please. People would never get confused. Everything got resolved in a bow at the end. So and droids are more complicated than that. Here's a question. Do you think droids would have been more successful if it had been done at, in first-run syndication? With a much larger episode order, enough to fit a standard uh, syndication package. Oh, I see. Um, maybe. I, I think, frankly, it would have done better in the 90s. Had it come out, you know, just or even just a few years later with the Batman the Animated Series stuff, late 80s, early 90s, mm. uh, 
you you started to have more shows with story arcs and i mean it's one of the many ways i think that droids was ahead of its time uh and, and would have been received better um well you know even then the, the connection between uh george lucas and steven spielberg if amblin animation had in the 90s had mm-hmm. been in charge yeah. of bringing star wars to the small screen man that really would have been something but you know they they decided to do novana and i think they're um they have a lot of cute quirks in, in their animation there is uh, i think i had shown you images had come out that Nelvana was trying to develop an animated series based on Willow that had some really good character designs. Oh, yeah. It, I think it's a shame we, n- we never got that as an animated series. I mean, that movie was not a out-and-out flop. It just flopped. It just sort of performed kind of middling. But it's certainly done well enough on video that there's been several, you know, special edition DVDs and Blu-rays and all these things. Well, Nelvana had also tried to do an animated Doctor Who series, and their pre-production art for that is amazing. In the animated Radioland murder series, just don't get me started. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so it's, it's, I'm curious to see what the next week's episode is. I uh, The only thing I remember of The Great Heap is it was one of the few Star Wars droids uh, released on VHS that my local blockbuster video uh, had on the shelf. Yeah, it was. It's it alone was much more accessible than the rest of this series. Right, and um, as we've said, when when Disney launches their Disney Plus service, will it have all of Star Wars and Ewoks and droids on there? I think that'd be cool. Frankly, I don't, I don't if... think it will. I I, no? I, I think it's barely going to scratch the surface of what's locked away in the vaults of the various production houses that they now own. I'm I'm very skeptical of of uh, Disney Plus right now. Uh, Do we think it will get that unaired? Uh, I think like 40 episode show that set the green did oh, Star, Star Wars, Wars detours. detours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, supposedly it is. Uh, I, I have heard, I have heard rumors that supposedly that is finally going to get shuffled out there just, just to, just to maximize the amount of Star Wars content they have available. Cause that right. is something to consider. Like until recently there was barely any Star Wars. There was three movies and this cartoon. <laughs> and no one saw the yeah. cartoon, as we have, as well, we and, have seen. And yeah, and it's worth mentioning around this time, um, you know, the this show was out in 85, 86. I think the Marvel comic had finished or was close to being wrapped up around this time. It lasted a few scant years after Return of the Jedi. For, for novels, all you really had were these trilogy of prequel novels, three on Han Solo and three on Lando Calrissian. Um but otherwise, and of course you had, uh, oh, geez, what's the Alan Dean, F- Splinter of the Mind's Eye, right? Oh, yeah. Was the other big. But but otherwise, yeah, you didn't really have a big resurgence of Star Wars uh, expanded universe stuff uh, until that. Um, until the 90s, really. Uh, yeah, until the 90s, I'm thinking with. Um, there was know, the expanded the, universe toy line. There was the Young Jedi Academy series young Jedi by Academy uh, had, J. Michael Straczynski. You had a. Uh, Air, air of the uh, Empire, you know, those, the Timothy Zahn Star Wars Dark books. Forces. You also had Dark Forces. You had uh, Dark Horse had Dark Empire, I think, which was a pretty early expanded universe thing from them when they got the comic license. Um, you know, all, all leading up to the prequels and the special edition of Star Wars and stuff. But yeah, the 80s were just kind of a 
a bad or a more difficult time to be a Star Wars fan. You were starving there in the desert, man. <laughs> and out in the Dune Sea. Out, out in the Dune Rune Sea, yes. Uh, <laughs> the Rune Sea. Do you now? Here's a sort of science fiction question, real quick. Then I'll go into the next segment. Do you think that uh, the Dune movie that's coming out in 2020 is going to get a sequel? I, I am sure they're banking on it. Cause, well, the last I heard, they were splitting the first book into two movies. They are, but I'm not sure if they're filming it back to back. But they, uh, they should be. They should, because if, if they don't, I don't think you're going to get that second movie. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm kind of cynical about it. But, I mean, well, you never know. Like, like, like Children of Dune, that miniseries, <laughs> was supposed to be like a backdoor pilot to a Dune TV series. Yeah, I could see that. That that uh, uh, never happened. I mean, I, I see why they're doing a movie of Dune, but I'm kind of disappointed. I, on the other hand, I know uh, had you come out of nowhere and done like a movie on God Emperor of Dune, that would be a colossal colossal mistake. Um, you'll just confuse everybody. Well, so, like the the first book has been adapted just enough times that I kind of wish they would just skip ahead uh, and come back times, to that later, maybe. Yeah, three times in 35 years, yeah. It, it is so shocking that Dune has been much more successful as a real-time strategy game series than as, as, as films. I, I'll say, like, the the director of the new Dune movie I liked, I had only seen his, his Blade Runner uh, sequel, which I thought was pretty good. And I hope the movie is good, but what I really hope is the movie convinces the people that have the rights to the video games to release the old video games on GOG and Steam. Oh, that'd be so fun. Because those have been unavailable for a while. And, the, and those uh, those rights issues with Dune video games are um, really complicated. Well, actually, just uh, as a joke, I'd, I'd asked you who your favorite Harkonnen was, and you had said Mike McShane as the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. He actually is pretty good in that role. I, I picked it because I think it was a happy medium. It's it's very easy to camp it up too much, which I think they did with uh, the Dune uh, Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. And and the, the David Lynch Baron Hoconan was, was super gross, and, and he is gross, but there's also, I don't know, kind of like an elegance to him. And I think the, the Michael McKean one was a... Oh, not Michael McKean, McShane, McShane, thank you. Um was was a good sort of medium and uh and in that game emperor battle for dune if you play as the harkonnen uh you get to choose which of his children uh take the throne oh neat because well, they, they're not his children they're his twist, nephews he has no well, he has no nephew, legitimate sure. children but but they murder they they murder him pretty early on in the campaign i believe i've seen to his choose, death scene yeah, it's a pretty good death scene, and, and you get to see who do you go with the the one that's like Sting, or the Beast Raban. I think they slightly <laughs> change the names because it's in a, its own continuity. But I thought, well, that, that's a pretty novel idea. <laughs> and, and who would pick the Beast? Who would pick the Beast Raban over Sting? Really? Well, technically, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen would, but only so that he could then look like a hero by kicking the Beast out and replacing him with Fade Rotha. Yes, yes. Wheels uh, within wheels, plans within plans, faints within faints. You must squeeze, nephew. You must squeeze. The, um, I'm really surprised. I almost <gasps> would have rather them had, if you were going to do a new Dune movie, just do that prequel trilogy. There's a, several like, prequel novels. Uh, well, which, hell, which one well, do you okay, think? sure. 
do, do the one that's the furthest in the past where the Harkonnens are the heroes and they're fighting robots and it's really... Um, oh, it's the Butlerian Jihad. Yeah, the Butlerian Jihad. <laughs> well, I mean, you might as well. You tried tried almost everything else. <laughs> so th- this has been In Dune Again, a Star Wars Dune podcast. Yeah, but actually, let's go on to the next... Uh, well, we have the droid eye for the Jedi, right? <laughs> yes, where we try to figure out which character is the secret Jedi Master. And the more, the more I, I think about it, the more I think Gaff is secretly a Jedi Master. Uh, Gaff the Mantis Man. Uh, he's the o- he's the only person who never draws the ire of uh, Governor Kung or Admiral Screed, despite the fact that he's ostensibly working for both. Uh, so he's clearly manipulating them and playing them both off of each other. Also, he's immune to the Rouge. We don't know why, but as I can only assume the Rouge sickness is a dark force disease because it, it makes you disappear like a Jedi on their deathbed. Um, but I'm figuring this one just pulls you straight into the dark side. Well, he's immune because he's already attuned to the dark side. Also, when he's hit with the cure, he acts like a complete madman. It gets him high. I think that's an act. I think he was trying to create a big enough distraction so that when the lava froze, taking the base with it, he would have time to flee on his stolen skiff. I think he's still out there. I think he's plotting his revenge. I think he would have come back as a Sith Lord if we had gotten to season two. Compelling. I, um, you know, my my theory is um, Kuhn is a Jedi Master because... I think his having a negative reaction to the uh to the gas is a is a ruse. He in fact is uh. is trying to force himself to become an invisible to become one with the dark side of the force to get ultimate power. So he's striking and, himself down to become more powerful than you could ever imagine. It that's exactly what it is, Thrasher. I couldn't have said it better myself. He um he is just working so so hard to get all that all that stuff going on, and uh, and he can't, and, and and he just he just does it too far. He get he has incorrect calculations, and and his his stupidity and stuff is kind of a ruse. And in fact, the whole reason he's in cahoots with Screed is uh, Screed is also a Sith, and he wants to take down Screed and become the the master. Oh, so you've got a you've got a secret uh, secret Jedi Master double shot. I got a yeah, double shot, double shot, double crossover. Uh, crisscross, du- apple double-bladed lightsaber, <laughs> double-bladed lightsaber of the Force. Yeah, very intriguing fan theory. Well, listeners, who was right? Uh, write who you think was right down on a postcard and find some way to get it to us. Yes. Actually, I would I would love to to respond to some uh, listener comments on our on our preposterous fan theories. But, uh, so I guess send, send them to us while you can. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, what's next? Next is Expanded Universe, where we talk about some non-movie-related Star Wars media we've enjoyed over the past week. Uh, I, I have one, and this is something uh, current in the news that came out. Really? And it, it's just, the, this headline is way too funny, but it's, uh, I think it's, be a, make for some fun conversation. Headless body on, found in topless bar. Uh, that is the best headline of all time, but no, not that one. Um, this is from uh, the Mary Sue, 
And headline says, Jedi Council host upset that women got invited to Disney's Star Wars park instead of him. <laughs> the sense of entitlement is strong in this one. It's written by Rachel Leishman. And um, have you heard of this story? No, I mean, there have been lots of reactions to the, the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, but there's been so much of it, I feel like I've missed most of it. Right. So so this one, real quick, is a Collider is, is a entertainment website, entertainment, you know, news reviews, that sort of thing. And they have a, they do a lot of well-produced video content. They do a show called uh, Jedi, Jedi Council is one of the Star Wars themed show. And uh, the host of that is, is a guy, one of the hosts on there is Christian Harloff. And uh, as we mentioned, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is the new park in Disneyland that's Star Wars themed, even though they only have one out of two rides, so to speak, in operation. And the pirates eat the tourists. Yes, and the pirates eat the tourists. And you can get, uh, there, there's already, uh, you can get exclusive metal Star Wars sporks on eBay for $80. People are already <laughs> flipping those. I bet they'll be selling the Coca-Cola and the little thermal detonator uh, packaging. Uh, man, the merchandising and that stuff's going to be nuts. Oh, Lord, exclusive. yeah. Disney knows how to merchandise. Um, anyhow, so this guy, Christian Harloff, went on this big rant on his live show and said, like, uh, I'm really ups- I'm really butthurt that I wasn't invited. I host, uh, you know, Collider Live, uh, Jedi Council. I really should have been invited. And instead, they set these two uh, other uh, female journalists that have much less experience than I do. And I sent them an email to the PR guy and they didn't send me it. So guess what? I'm I'm not going to go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge for two years and I'm not going to talk about it on the show. For and two it gets so years. Contentious. Yeah, it gets so contentious. The producer of the show gets in the mic and says, no, you're going to because that's your job. And he's like, well, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, then you'll be replaced. Like it, like Damn. live on air. Uh, the uh, the archived YouTube di- video for this got pulled, but uh, other people have been reposting it. I can send you a link. It, it's very cringeworthy um, to see a grown man act in in such a way, and um, like the the corporation is not in this case Disney is not entitled to invite you to send you on every little Star Wars thing. It's, it was one of those things where I I can understand being disappointed. That sure. you're you're not invited, especially being sort of connected, however tangentially through through you know various various media outlets. But that that response is totally uncalled for. Well, I guess beyond funny, that, is if they didn't yeah. invite you before, they're certainly not going to invite you now. <laughs> no, um... <laughs> I mean, you realize every time they get a new ride working there, there's going to be another huge media blitz and more PR stunts. Like, you will have so many opportunities to go on your on a company's dime. Right, or if you care that much about Star Wars uh, and you aren't on the invite, like, you should probably just pony up out of your own pocket and and book and go as soon as you can on your own dime for the sake of the show and maybe try to get it reimbursed later or something. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. There's so many things you, uh, you could do. It, it just is uh, that the producer goes on air and they really get into it is very, very funny. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So that, that may be the most fascinating thing that you like, or, or I guess most fascinating response that has ever been brought up on this show. 
I love that the link on here, it's the MarySue.com slash entitled host cries about Star Wars. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it, I'm sure you'd have a lot of fun reading the comments on this stuff. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we weren't invited either. <laughs> so. No. I don't think anyone at Lucasfilm even knows what Star Wars droids is, really, if we're going to be honest. And but, they own it, so that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're, but we're carrying a torch for, for a weird show we liked, but that's that's the nature of the internet, man. <laughs> I would right. much rather uh, be doing this than, than than writing screeds about how awful a particular thing is. Sure. On Twitter, Alicia Grosso said, uh, maybe the reason Disney is making a point to invite more female journalists to Star Wars press events is because they realize the brand is being ruined by entitled proprietary white guys and they want to change that. <laughs> Weird how that works. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty well put. Anyway, I, I thought uh, it was fun to talk about. Uh, what's What's a... Star Wars uh, thing you've been watching. Well, s- strangely enough, it's Di- it's Disney theme park adjacent. Um, so we we all know we we've all heard of uh, Star Tours, the Star Wars ride that was at various Disney yeah. parks, got revamped several times, and I know people. I don't know whether it's going to be part of Galaxy's Edge. I know there's lots of people who want it to be part of Galaxy's Edge, and that's a perfect opportunity to bring it back. But oh yes, oh um, I was just going to say. So from what I know, they they tore down the original ride. They they have had something there for the past few years. It's kind of like Star Tours 2.0, where it kind of randomizes what planet you're in, and it's all new graphics. And it, it's yeah, that's the revised version. Yeah, revised. Yep. Like I do, I do know one of the Star Tours droids is in uh, is in Galaxy's Edge. I saw a fan t- uh, with a photograph of that at one of the the opening events. But anyway, uh, I'm not here to talk about the ride specifically. Uh, what I found is when when the ride opened on the wonderful world of Disney, they did a special to promote Star Tours, and it's oh. a it's a, it was a special hosted by uh, Jill Gerard, the uh, you know TV's Buck Rogers, uh, Ernie Reyes Jr., who who some some of you may remember as the Pizza Boy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two. Uh, I did some research, so Buck Rogers was off the air by the time this special aired. Um, the two of them were working together on a show, a uh, martial arts adventure show called Sidekicks. So that's why they're both they're both hosting this, and it's you know them walking around the ride. But it also has Anthony Daniels as C three PO is a big part of the special. Uh, and in the first two minutes of this special, C three PO raps about Star Tours. That's uh, it. Is it a positive rap? Is he is he dissing the the ride? No, no, it's very positive. It's all it's all about the wonders of space tourism. You know, as he says, you know, my my name, you know, is C three PO, and if you want to travel, space is the place to go. Um, and, and I got to give him quick because R two D two is with him, and at, at one po- the rap is quite long, but at one point it has the lines. Um, this is R two D two, and he can't rap because the factory didn't give him lips to flap. Uh, That's pretty good. Like it's 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 cheesy as hell, but like yes. it's not like it's bad, but it's not bad in the way you'd expect. I'm gonna try to extract the audio so you you all can listen to this. The whole special's up on YouTube. Just search for I think Star Tours, Star Star Tours special, Star Tours pr- uh, promo. Um, 
but and, and there's sort of an educational veneer where Jill Gerard and uh, Ernie Reyes Jr. talk about the history of space travel in movies, but also real world space travel. They name drop some astronauts, show some NASA uh, and, and cosmonaut footage. Um, one, but one thing that, that uh, is that, that Ernie Reyes Jr. is super excited, like you would expect a kid to be, like if you were surrounded by Star Wars. Like I think. I think everything coming from him is very is very real and very authentic. Jill Gerard goes through this like it's a dress rehearsal. He mm. he flub he flubs his lines. He doesn't seem into it. But like they're clearly not doing any retakes. This was made on the cheap using assets that were available in the ride. Uh, but they interact with Doctor D and C three PO. We do see some footage from the ride. It's just a, it's a fascinating oddity because like again this is this is from a time where if you wanted more Star Wars. Well, this Disneyland ride is all you're going to get for over a decade. Did they uh, talk to the Imagineers about how they constructed the ride and the hydraulics? And no, the they did not talk things? at all about how Stupid. the ride worked. Yeah, I, I do wonder um, what other options they had, or I, I, ideas they had for a Star Wars ride. I, there must have been unused concepts. Um, although, like, like, what do you even call that kind of ride? Because that was very popular in the 90s. Where you have a theater where it kind of shakes and you know it, makes it feel like you're going down a pit. What's it called like like something motion like force motion or? Uh... Yeah, um, I I, re- I recall going to one at Bush Gardens where it was like a little gnome takes you into a cave, and we went with friends of the family, and it made uh, one of my mom's friends so nauseous she had to run out of the theater. Oh yeah, I've 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 been on a few that have been like that. Sometimes they can get a wee bit uh, too intense. What's the best version of those that you've seen? Well, there's actually in some higher end arcades. Like that's the thing is I haven't I haven't ridden too many like rides like that at amusement parks. But at a lot of uh, a lot of higher end arcades. They have these like motion theaters where oh yes yeah where but where there's an interactive element like you get a light gun and there'll be targets mm-hmm. and things you can shoot and interact with and there was uh, there's this place in Lexington called Malibu Jacks I've been a few times and they've got one of those theaters and we've tried out some of the settings on that they've got a zombie one that's okay but the one that was really just fun because it was just so ballsy and out there is one of their uh, one one of the the. The, the ones they have is it's like your Victorian adventurers fighting a mad scientist who's released an army of jetpack werewolves into London. Wow, that's fun. And it's just so yeah. balls out crazy. It's been my favorite of, of all the ones we've done so far. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I remember really liking the thinking the Back to the Future one was good. Uh, and... I think since then they've replaced that one with a Simpsons themed ride. Oh yeah, which has, a, as I recall, has a joke in it with Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown, where his where Professor Frank has demolished his institute to make way for the Springfield uh, exhibit. God, yeah. I mean, if if I was inventing one of those rides for to tie into Star Wars, I think redoing the. Um, scene in Empire Strikes Back where they go on the planet, but they're actually in the mouth of a creature. Oh, in the world? Yeah, it would be a, a natural 
That actually would be would be pretty cool because there there is there is like an ice field component, the ice steroid field uh, that's part of it. Because after I watched this, I found somebody had recorded the whole ride, and I watched the whole ride. It's kind of fun hearing Paul Rubens as a droid. He's like the pilot of the vessel. It's a really neat animatronic. Um, but like the spe- like the special is fun, but like it it is cheap. Like they show footage from Star Wars, but they don't use any of the music or sound effects. It's just placeholder music and generic sci-fi pew pews. Um, the other thing is because they got to tie it into Disney while they're talking about movies that visualize space travel, they talk about Tron for way too long. Mm. And show almost the full light cycle sequence. There's, it, it's one of those things that's always baffled me about Disney. For a company with so with, with so such vast resources and such an amazing talent pool to draw from, when they promote their own stuff, it's cheap as hell. Yeah, they. Um, speaking of Tron, I, I saw footage of uh, a. Uh, I think in Disneyland China or something, they have an exclusive Tron ride over there. Oh, cool. And someone snuck their phone and videotaped the whole thing. And it, it seemed very much like the E.T. ride where you're taken on a vessel on a very light kind of roller coaster thing. But it's supposed to be simulating the light cycles. And they filmed it with some actors from Tron Legacy and all that stuff. So, um, Oh, and the last thing I'll say about this, this uh, Star Tours preview, it has, it has the, the weirdest disclaimer I've ever seen. So... When when Gilles Gerard and Ernie Reyes Jr. go onto the ride, there's this neat scene where like they suit up in these like Star Wars flight suits that have Star Tours badges, and then you know get on board the ride. So at the end of the special, this disclaimer comes up: the jumpsuits were props made for this made for this promotion made for this promotion. They are not available in the park. <laughs> Well, they knew people would ask. I don't think that's so strange, but yeah, but but like they're so like they're so worried that they've got to like there's got to be a disclaimer for that. That's so weird, right? Well, cool. This has been a pretty uh, packed episode of In Trouble Again. Uh, what are we gonna What are we gonna talk about next week? Well, next week we actually because we are technically. Count well because it is. It is a separate story arc. We are going to do one of our famous Star Wars adjacent episodes before we get to the Great Heap. And what we're going to be looking at is another nineteen uh, eighty science fiction oddity. We're going to be looking at an, the episode of Quark entitled "May the Farce Be With You," which is one of the first big televised Star Wars parody. Uh, Quark being the somewhat Star Trek, somewhat Star Wars parody created by Buck Henry, the co-creator of Get Smart, the uh, famous spy parody. And Buck Henry, if I have this right, he did some National Lampoon stuff as well. Yeah, he worked on National Lampoon. It used to be, for I think the first five years of Saturday Night Live's run, it was tradition that he would always host the last episode of every season. Got it. Okay. Now that should be pretty neat to see. I mean, when... At that time, you know, Star Wars was certainly around, but it wasn't as huge as a pop culture thing as it's become. So to see how how they treat that and what's considered a parody of something closer to the time of the release of this stuff uh, should be interesting. 
Beyond that, I'm just sort of fascinated by Quark because whether you whether you know it or not, it did go on to influence later science fiction. Some of the some of the people who worked on its models would work on Star Trek. Uh, Space mm. Quest Five, the uh, adventure game, was in part inspired by Quark. They even borrow one of the show's recurring gags. Uh, no, I mean I've heard, I've heard good things about it, and uh, as I understand, it's pretty well regarded, despite uh, I think only lasting for one season. Yeah, it only lasted one season. Uh, the pilot is is fairly different from the actual series, if only because some parts got recast. Some parts were also completely removed and replaced. Um, and it is like fo- it's funny, like like Get Smart. It can be incredibly smart and satirical, but then the smart and satirical joke will be next to the horriest old Borscht Belt gag you've ever heard. So it tra- it kind of operates on all levels. Um, if you're going to see any one other episode, I would recommend watching the Mirror Universe episode. It It is a flawless takedown of every story that involves evil duplicates that you've ever seen. Um, to the point where it points out that not all ethics can be explained by morals. And that leads to some <laughs> interesting character reversals. In fact, that I won't give I won't give away the best gag that's grown out of that. You just you just got to you just got to see that episode. Talking about science fiction comedy uh, makes me think of Red Dwarf a bit. Oh yeah, um, is that something where they're they're done making new uh, seasons of? Because they tend to do specials like every few years. Well, they they took a long hiatus, but they are doing uh, they they are they are doing another series. They they are it's strange. It's almost kind of like American now. Like they don't just do one series; they get contracted for two, and they just break up the production. So uh, so two years ago, they released two series, and there's two more series that are coming out now. Good. Yeah, and the well, son uh, of one of the creators is now uh, writing for it, so it's kind of turned into a family business. Pretty cool. It's always nice when you can uh, keep a business going in the family like that. I always marvel at uh, how. Oh, what is it? The the estate that that came up with the, the chipmunks has been keeping that alive for years. Oh yeah, the uh, uh, Ross the Ross Bagdasarian estate. Hmm. Very good. Well, all right. Well, we'll catch you uh, for In Trouble Again. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher uh, reminding you to check out our theme music performed by Cybertronic Spree. They uh, they are an awesome band. Yep. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Uh, follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me uh, at Internet Mayor. And um, for In Trouble Again, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying... More, more, more pie!